This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. Whether it's your favorite day of the season or you avoid it like the plague, there's no debating. It's a big day for the world of food and hospitality. Valentine's Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I don't feel that my manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a rosé champagne. It's an old Jamaican drink from way back, and we just decided to bring it back into existence. It's a drink that the men, they believe it really does wonders. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about innovators, entrepreneurs, career changers, and creative people who have uh, decided to take their lives in unexpected directions and go into the big, complicated, but always fun world of food. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And today we have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Rose Previtt, who is the owner of Maidan and Compass Rose in Washington, D.C. Rose, uh, Rose, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So um, your restaurants have gotten quite a bit of press, so I assume that some of our listeners at least will be familiar, but why don't you tell us uh, what what they are? Oh, no problem. Um, we had a crazy year last year with the opening of Maidan. Um, but before Maidan, there was Compass Rose. It's located in the 14th Street corridor neighborhood of Washington, D.C., if you're familiar, on the corner of 14th and T. Uh, Compass Rose is an international street food restaurant. It is located in a 130-year-old row house, which has lots of beautiful challenges. Um, and it's been around for almost five years. It'll be five years old in April, actually. Thank That's you. That's a big milestone it, for it a really restaurant. It really is. Thank you. I'm feeling it. Um, and then Maidan opened like, just over a year ago, 10 minutes walking. So if you take that 14th Street that our neighborhood gets the name from and you walk about 10 minutes north, you'll hit Maidan. It is in a 130-year-old warehouse space. It used to be an industrial laundry. Uh, before that, the building was a service center for trains, for streetcars. So very interesting history. But we decided to put a Middle Eastern uh, fire-based restaurant in it. So that one is kind of our, our new addition to the family in many ways. And um, I run both of them as a, an owner operator. And I'm fortunate enough to um, to be there often and have fortunately in a very hard industry had a, a lot of good years. Um, so what does it mean that it's fire based? <laughs> Fire-based means, um, in the spirit of street food that started at Compass Rose, um, I really wanted to cook food on fire, the most primal, ancient way of cooking. And um, at Maidan, we do it inside, which, you know, is not common, um, or it's common to have it inside. You see a lot more hearth-based restaurants in New York and in D.C., but um, they tend to be in the kitchen or in the back of the restaurant. But I think what makes us so unique is it's in the middle of the restaurant, actually the entire kitchen <laughs> why did you decide to to lay it out like that 
Um, well, honestly, the building decided for me. I'm one of these people who really just connects with a space. And when I walked into this building, I saw these old steel beams and this sort of like steam shaft. And no one can still tell me what it was, but it looked as if it exhausted something through the building out to the to the roof at some point. I asked the real estate agent immediately when I saw this weird, bizarre structure in the middle of an otherwise open space with 20-foot high ceilings, can you please go see if there is a hole in the roof? And she thought it was nuts. I'm like, no, 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 go look right now. Um, she confirmed that there was. And so we were able to um, use it as an exhaust or a hood system, which if you have opened a restaurant, um, you know is a very expensive part of it. And to not have to make a hole in a roof is is a savings but on top of it I love design and I love weirdness and to put a fire right where everyone has to encounter it feel it see it I'm like this could not be better but this the building decided it was already there that's amazing yeah Jenny uh, well do we want to back up and kind of talk about your career before uh, opening <laughs> I, I, I guess <laughs> since that is the theme of the was podcast. there a life before the restaurants I don't remember yeah, I it but I will try to remember possibly far away <laughs> Um, yeah, I actually started my career much differently. My life started in food with my family. Um, but my career was, uh, you know, an undergrad in um, communications in Spanish and then a master's in public policy. So before the restaurant, I was working in local government, both in DC and then in New York, uh, before I moved to Russia for my husband's job, which started a lot of the like soul searching about, um, where I really wanted to take my life and, and what my dreams were. But, um, I guess the career really, you know, put its roots down in me as a kid growing up in a family, like obsessed with food and um, two parents with really rich cultures. My mother being Lebanese American, my dad being Italian American. Uh, food was a way of life. Um, it's just that, you know, it's a, it's a scarier career choice. So I did practical things for a while. <laughs> what did you do in public policy? So what? Um, in public policy, I my interest has always been in local government, even though I live in Washington, D.C., which is confusing because most people move there to work for the federal government. Um, I know better. <laughs> I won't make too many policy jokes. Um, but yes, D.C. is a place where, you know, you see this federal governance taking a lot of time for action. and It's, it's very big and vast. And I really like city politics uh, because you get a little bit more of an immediate result to your work. And I, I like tangible things that I, I know I worked hard today. I saw something happen. So local government always appealed to me. And so I worked for the DC city council and then I moved to New York and I worked for the New York city council. And then I moved to Russia and did no work for three years. <laughs> I would like to know what you were eating growing up uh, with such with such an interesting family background, like what was Thanksgiving like or any of the major holidays? What was on the table? Oh, well, most days were a major holiday at my house, I think. I had three brothers. <laughs> I have three brothers or four of us. We ate a lot. So there was actually a lot of cooking all the time. Um, but being Lebanese American, my mom's staples were, if you're familiar with Middle Eastern food, you will know the different versions of kibbeh that you can do, uh, kusa, which actually just means to stuff a lot of things, but we would just stuff squash. Um those big things like baklava were more reserved for the holidays because they're a little bit more labor intensive. So Christmas, Easter, uh, graduations, weddings, uh, there's always a big uh, family gathering to do the more intricate desserts. But we had, you know, regular everyday things were always homemade. I, I grew up in a small town, um, even though my family hails from, my mom from the Lebanese of Detroit, my dad, the Italians of New Jersey, but we grew up 
actually in a very small town. And so there weren't a lot of restaurants. So we cooked all the time. I think my parents were a little, like they didn't realize it, but a little ahead of the curve on all natural farm to table. They didn't know they were doing those things, but I, I was raised with it. So. And, and your mother in particular started cooking for the community that you lived in too, right? Yes. We were kind of like the weird food family and like a very, very homogenous, like not very ethnically diverse town. And quickly my mom thought it would be a great idea to educate everybody about who we were and what we stand for through food. So just by having people over, if friends came over, they we never had anything what I thought at the time was normal. Um, we had Middle Eastern food or we had Italian food. Um, and it, it actually kids started after grade school. <laughs> I did think it was really cool. It was rough there for a while. But by high school, it became the cool house to eat in. And families started asking my mom to cater their weddings, their anniversary parties, their graduations. So essentially, we had a catering company out of our house. And um, I was telling you earlier, my dad, though he was a college professor, had a side hobby of making food, street food. At fairs and carnivals, we would make Italian sausage sandwiches. And this very bizarre food background is what I grew up in. And then my mom got a brick and mortar place, but at 60 years old when my dad retired. Why do you think it was important? Oh, my God. I know. It's like really bizarre. Uh, why do you think it was important for your parents to, to share their food, not only with you and your, your brothers, but with the, the community at large? I think they were very afraid of us losing the cultures that they had grown up in such large communities where everyone was Lebanese or everybody was Italian, even though they were in the States, it was easy, really. Then they saw they, they wanted to raise us in this place because it was safe. And there's a lot of really wonderful people that are still very dear to me to this day. But they there was no internet back then. There was not like no one knew. There was no food network. No one knew what this food was. And my mom, I think, realized for us to identify with our culture, we had to know it. And then for us to get secure and proud of it, we had to share it. And both of them being educators were like, this is how we're going to make friends. This is how we're going to teach people. And, you know, again, it's rough in the early years when you're just weird, right? Until kids figure out that this is really the way to go. <laughs> Was it fun for you as a kid to to cook with your parents, the, the sausage and peppers with your father or, uh, <laughs> or the Lebanese food with your mom? Or was it more of a chore? How did you feel about it as a kid? I if I've been doing it for so long. There isn't like a period that I can actually tell you that I did not help um, because in a large family, kids have to help way earlier. Um, so I enjoyed it. There were years I think my dad conned me into believing that I was his apprentice, you know, just to do the dirty work. And I started to get wind of that. I was like, all right, this isn't. After you chopped uh, 25 pounds oh, of peppers. Yeah. You were... <laughs> like you start to get onto this game. I'm like, oh, this isn't actually a cool thing. You, you got me there for a while. But uh, then I realized that you know, I, I enjoyed it. There was quite a bit of passion. But when you get into high school, you just want to hang out with your friends. You don't want to cook with your parents on Saturday morning, you know. So there were some years there that I that I was complaining a lot. But, of course, my dad now walks very smugly into Compass Rose and says, oh, so you sell street food. Yeah, oh, okay. So are you sorry for all those times you yelled at me for all those Saturday mornings I took away from you to make sausage sandwiches on the streets? I'm like, this, we're not going to go there right now. But you can be smug. Have your moment, you know. So, yeah, it's all come full circle. So what do you think teenage Rose would think of uh, what you're doing now? Um, well, now the world's very different, I think. I think food is cool and sexy. I don't think it was quite having that moment when I was in high school in Ohio. Um, but now that we've seen the standard of you know food quality go up, uh, we've seen... We've seen chefs having their moment. You know, they're on TV. There are these beautiful people with tattoos, you know, running around. I think now it's cool. 
So Rose of 16 years old um, back in Ohio would have thought it was cool. But back then, I probably just would have rolled my eyes. <laughs> A lot of eye rolling. So when you were traveling um, around the world with your husband, was there like a specific moment where you realized like there, was there a particular street food that kind of pulled you back to your roots and made you want to start something in food? I think I, I you know, I always wanted to be in food. I always, I always was. I left the home and family businesses to work in bars and restaurants through college when I got to D.C. There really hasn't been a moment I wasn't in food. But I think, you know, I was afraid to make it a career. I think I thought it was something you would do later in life. So the moment of, I think, accepting that I, that later was now and like why wait was in Russia um, while my husband and I were traveling. And we had a lot of more time to think than we do now that we're running around. But back then, you know, we took Trans-Siberian across Russia. I'm in Siberia in the cold with like nothing to do but think about my life. And I think um, the travel, you know, sometimes it gets a little too eat, pray, love-ish, but really like travel does give you that time to sit with yourself, examine your soul to some extent and, and figure out what you really want. So it was while we were traveling that I said, no, this is it. This is a career and I can, I can make the change. What were some of the dishes that you encountered on that trip or on other trips that, yes. that really that stick out now as you look back? On that trip in particular, um, Georgian food generally was something I was introduced to only because I lived in Russia. I don't think I would have found it otherwise. Very popular cuisine. It is, someone told me, you know, as Mexican food is to the U.S., Georgian food is to Russia. And that made a lot of sense to me, that like adopted comfort food. No, I've, never, I've never heard that before, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does when you're living there. I think if you ask like an expat in Russia, they'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense because it's affordable. It's everywhere. But it was food I had never heard of before. And it opened up windows to this country I didn't know existed. And it's a very special place. It's kind of adopted to me. So one of our most popular dishes at Compass Rose, and a dish that I insisted was on the first menu, is hajapuri, which by now a lot of people have had. But six years ago, I could barely find. Yes. Yeah, even in New York. I would come up here from D.C. and go all the way to Brighton Beach and barely find it. But now you guys have got a lot of cool places up here. Um, but I decided I had to bring it to Washington. And so we did that. It was very successful. And for any Anyone who doesn't know what Khashoggi is, can you Oh, I'm so uh, sorry. Yes. It? Well, actually, in the Republic of Georgia, where I have been now six times, it is um, the national dish. Though there are forty or so variations, depending. Oh, only forty variations. Yeah, only forty. It's a huge country. No, it's not. I don't know. It's probably less smaller than Montana, probably. Um, but. The, there's there's different versions. There is a street food version that I really do enjoy that we don't currently make at the restaurant, but is more like a calzone with cheese inside of it, dough around it, and it's baked. We do a version from the western part of Georgia on the Black Sea coast. There's a town called Batumi where the Ajuri style is very popular. So it's more like a bread boat, for lack of a better word. Big piece of bread, cheese, egg, and butter um, are all mixed together hot. And it is been very successful. We sold over 50,000 of them. Actually, wow. no exaggeration, in five years of Compass being open. So that dish left a mark. It landed on the menu. My husband and I had a lot of crazy adventures where food was like the biggest memory or the centerpiece of the experience, like getting lost in a dark alley in Sicily and thinking we were just going to die. And then instead we found the best pizza we've ever had. Um, you know, a lot of dishes, lots of noodles that we had in Hong Kong on the streets. Um, they all made their way onto the, to the menu at some point. Experiences like that when you're traveling are, are so specific. They're so specific to the place, to the the way that you're feeling, the the weather, the smells, the color of the light. Uh, how do you translate that complexity into a, a dish? 
at a restaurant in Washington, D.C., very far away from the alleyway in Sicily or the, <laughs> the beach town in Georgia. Yeah, no, very good point. We do our best. I think nothing compares, sure. right, to actually being there. But I do think the highest compliment that I get at both restaurants is your space feels transformative. Like it feels like we we you know we transported to somewhere else, and that I love because that's what we're trying to do. There's a lot of thoughtfulness in the the furniture, in the design, um, especially Maidan, is full of things that we gathered on our travels that come into the space. Uh, having the fire in the middle of the restaurant, having a restaurant in a very old row house, when really your entire message is hospitality, which is what we felt in all of these countries that we visited. Extreme hospitality, people willing to take us in when they didn't know us, to teach us to make a dish, to, to feed us something that was a, a family delicacy. You know, all of these experiences we try to express to people through the food, but also through the space. Um, so that is our best attempt, and um, I hope it works. Have you have you found uh, connections between your career in public policy, which which was pretty 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 well advanced? You have a master's degree. You work for the the New York City uh, Council Speaker. Um, have you found overlaps or or lessons that you've learned from public policy that you've been able to apply to the restaurant? Oh yes, I mean in general, right. Education is never wasted. I should make that point that you, you learn a lot. I'm still paying for it. I mean, let's talk about that. But um, definitely not wasted. Um, as an actual owner, you know, I am not a chef. I lean even more towards the front of the house. I was just trained at home with my mom, with with grandmas and moms. So I have a more home style uh, take on food. I have a huge appreciation for it. But when you're the owner and you have to take care of everything, you do your permits, you do a lot of things related to policy. You're on the other side, actually. And I know when I was doing Compass and I'm the one down at the city, like begging for my building permit, begging for my certificate of occupancy, I'm thinking some council member somewhere made this difficult for no reason. And I used to work for that council member, you know, so they do kind of, they, they do come together. And, um, really at the heart of it are food and policy is just trying to make people's lives better at the end of the day. So there, there are some connections. Yeah. One of the other things that's really challenging about like bringing food back from a lot of places is sourcing and, you know, kind of finding whether it's the right equipment, the right things, or also just training the right people to be able to cook it. Can you talk through a little bit of that process and how you are, have been able to try and keep as much authenticity um, and accuracy to the food that you cook? Absolutely. I, there are a lot of challenges, ingredients being one of them. You know, everything tastes better when you're there. Like you were saying, it's, it's the experience, but it's also the ingredients. Like some things are just grown there. And when they come back, you try to do it in the States, you don't have access to it anymore. So that is, that is definitely an issue. So some of the authenticity might be changed when you have to substitute for something that you can't get. Um, but that, that's just like the technical part. I feel like the, the best way I found um, was to actually take the chefs traveling with me. Um, so at both restaurants, I'd say the theme that ties them together more than anything is travel. An absolute love of travel, of experiencing other cultures and other people that are very foreign to us. Um, my first chef at Compass Rose had worked in multiple, he had traveled a lot and worked in many different ethnic restaurants. And so he understood, oh, I want a menu with like 15 to 20 countries represented on it. He wasn't scared. He embraced it. He was able to do it. But it was hard after that to, to find people. Um, the, my current chefs are amazing. They We've been, I don't know, probably like to 10 countries together at this point. But when we started working, they worked at Compass. And then when we started building Maidan together, 
I said, look, this is my soul food. This is what I grew up with. Like, I need you to feel it. I can't, you can't look at a cookbook. You can't just watch a YouTube video. So let's go. So we ended up going to five countries together uh, before we opened Maidan. And Which we, countries? Uh, we went to Morocco, Tunisia, Lebanon, uh, Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, and Turkey. And we cooked in homes. There was no staging. There are no fancy restaurants. But if there were, we did not go to them. Uh, we were in people's homes, truly with grandmas, cooking with them, learning their little tricks of the trade. And so a lot of the dishes that you get are are learned on the spot. You couldn't find the recipe or the technique in a book because it doesn't exist. Um, I, I challenge you to find a Tunisian cookbook. It's not easy. I actually met an American woman who's working on one, but there, there's very few. Um, so I say go to the source, feel the things, and then you have a better chance of bringing it back into the restaurant and into the food. You're also dealing with a, a part of the world, especially with Maidan, that, um, that uh, claims to certain foods, to certain cooking techniques, to certain... Uh, traditions of, of clay oven cooking, tandoor cooking are fairly contentious. A lot of countries use those yeah. ingredients, use those techniques and claim them as their own. Um, how do you, how do you fold that into the restaurant? How do you distinguish, um, you know, you're cooking in a tandoor oven. Is it the Armenian style? Is it the Indian style? <laughs> Is it the Iranian style? Is it, uh, you know, there's a, a huge amount of diversity within that one, within that one yeah. fairly simple piece of equipment. As our front of house staff will tell you, it is a challenge all the time, depending on who is at the table and where they were, where they grew up. And then they are currently the expert on whatever, you know, food came from that area. But we, we try to prepare them for that by the fact that especially, I mean, both restaurants, but especially Maidan, the word Maidan, I chose it because I learned it in Ukraine. The first time I went, uh, I was in Kiev and everyone kept talking about the Maidan, the Maidan, and I had no idea what it was. And I quickly realized it was the main square. It's actually called, I think, Independence Square, but everyone called it Maidan. That word has its root in Arabic to mean a square or a gathering place, like a public gathering place. And I realized they used it all over Eastern Europe. They use it in in India, in Hindi, they use it in Farsi. So people from like Central Asia knew this word. It was pronounced differently, but it always meant the same thing. And to me, those public gathering spaces that they have around the world where people come to mourn, celebrate, rebel, we don't have those quite as much. But that energy is what I was hoping the restaurant would feel like. And that goes to your question. We wanted a word that was pronounced differently, but meant the same thing. And that's how the dishes are. The dishes might be called something different in different countries, but a lot of them cross borders. A lot of it is due to migration or immigration patterns or, you know, famine in one country. Like there's all these stories behind how people, how these recipes got to us. So we don't designate a country. We make it very clear. Like if, if there's a certain way of doing it, it's because that's where we learned it on our travels. We're not claiming that is where it's from because actually at the end of the day, the whole point is just to come in here forget about all that and just realize that like this entire region of the world is very rich and crosses over itself multiple times. And there's a beauty in that. And like, we just hope that we give you the beautiful part. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in two minutes. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000 square foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, 
where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food, and we have the pleasure of interviewing Rose Previtt, who is the owner of Maidan and Compass Rose in Washington, D.C. Uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the, the complex food histories and ways that food and techniques have traveled, uh, especially through the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, I think another important thing to recognize is the complex politics of those countries and that, those regions historically and currently, and especially since your restaurants are in Washington, D.C., yeah, and that. Maidan opened yeah. <laughs> at a, 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 a complicated time yes. for international politics, and particularly as they pertain to the Middle East. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that experience, what it's like to operate a restaurant where you are very explicitly drawing from uh, cuisines that, that the administration is not, <laughs> from countries that the administration is not very friendly with, uh, and serving them to people who, who maybe work in the administration, maybe don't. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely serve everyone. So yeah. I, I, think every, I think everyone wants good food at the end of the day. And so we try to be very open and inclusive to everyone. Um, it is ironic because there was absolutely no intention in the timing. Uh, we planned our trip, right, as a lot of the bans were happening on certain countries, some of which are on our travel list. Uh, so people asked, oh, did you pick these countries because they were banned? I'm like, no, absolutely not. Like we had a culinary reason <laughs> or historical reason for every single one of them. But it does come up a lot in D.C. because the people who are actually making these laws are eating in the restaurant. Like it's crazy to think about. Um, so we have a very interesting group of people that come in. But um, at the heart of it, we just really wanted to to bring back the feeling of hospitality and welcomeness that we experienced in countries that a lot of people might be afraid of. You know, I did have a lot of people say, are you scared to go there? And I thought, no, it never occurred to me. But again, I've, you know, I've been to a lot of them before and I know, look, you can't find many small towns in America even at this point that will let a stranger in their house to have dinner with them. And that was every day of our trip. And, you know, I'm traveling with men on top of it in conservative parts of the Middle East where, you know, big white guys walking in is like kind of shocking to some, you know, to a lot of women who still trusted us and still welcomed us. And it was, it was really amazing. And we tried to be as respectful as possible. So I, yeah, it's a little ironic that these things are happening at the same time. I, I hope my, our, all of, I, I think I speak for all of my partners when I say our hope is that everyone will take a minute to let that go when they come into the restaurant, maybe they will transport a little bit and feel like they're on vacation. They'll just chill out for a minute and kind of forget what side of the aisle they're on and share this thing we all have in common, which is the need to eat and this need to commune with other people. Um, and I hope that maybe breaking bread together, you know, I, I, I 
maybe naively still believe that half of these problems we're talking about in Washington every day could be solved at the dinner table. So if they ever asked, I'd invite everybody in. If you're listening, guys, like you're welcome to come in. It's on me. <laughs> if you all want to sit, it's, talk about how we can fix all these problems, I will feed you until we figure it out. So I hope we give everyone a little bit of a break, I think, from the everyday of Washington. Was uh, travel something that you had done a lot before you moved to Moscow? Where did where did the urge come from to, to travel so widely? Well, I mean, if there's anyone else listening from a small town, I think there's if you if you're raised in a real small town, there's probably a part of you that either wants to stay and never change, or there's the other part of you that just wants to go as far away as possible. And I was the kid that wanted to go as far away as possible and see the world. And I started by studying abroad in college, and I fell in love with it. And I swore after living in Spain for six months, granted Spain, like everyone wants to live in Spain, but... Um, I would, I would continue traveling and continue seeing the world. And when I met my husband, it was an early thing we had in common was a love of travel. And so I knew that was like mandatory on my list of a partner. I was like, you must love to travel with me. You must be a good travel partner. And, and he is fortunately. So we've got a few years under our belt and, um, you know, Russia again was a little bit more spontaneous when he, he wanted to be a foreign correspondent and I just thought I could live anywhere. But I will say that Russia is more challenging just for the record than Spain. In case you didn't know that, um, I must not have known that when I made the decision to go, but yeah, it worked out in the end. And what was it about Russia that, that, <laughs> that landed you in, in a place where you felt like you needed to open a restaurant? Oh, like complete loneliness and desolation. I'll do that to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just like want to be surrounded by people and food all the time. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm never going to go to Siberia ever again. Um, but there is when you're not working. Uh, you're traveling all the time or you're you weren't working because I wasn't able to work. Yes. So I, I left this cool job I had in New York, um, thinking I could just figure it out. You know, again, a little young, a little foolhardy, a little romantic. I'll just land there. And worst case, I'll bartend without one word of the Russian language in my vocabulary. That was kind of ridiculous. Vodka, maybe that was the only thing I had. And strangely, they like beer too. And I didn't have the words for that when I got there, just vodka. Um, so I couldn't do anything without language in Moscow. There's not, then there wasn't a ton of English. English. So other than the option to teach English, which I didn't really feel the drive to do, um, I chose to travel. But when you're traveling, if you're a traveler and, you're, and you know, like that's when you clear your head, that's when you're really honest with yourself. Um, I didn't have to worry about work the next day. I read a lot and you know, it was really on a train trip across the country. When you're on a train for 70 hours at a time with like no internet, no, even like can't even charge anything. There's no electricity. Um, you have time to think. And so I think I just kind of saw my soul and said, this is what you really want to do with your life. So quit being afraid of it and just go do it. So I think the, the, go ahead, Jenny. Oh, I was also going to ask about, um, kind of the, like the, the street food aspect of, uh, what constitutes street food. Um, and like why you think that the, the U.S. doesn't really have as much of a street food culture. So, like, why, like, why do you think that is? And, like, what is so special about street food around the world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because I tend, my favorite countries tend to be the ones that are, like, the least developed. So if you're not super developed, there is no restaurant culture. So um, street food is what it is. I mean, if you go to Mexico City, uh, you can, I know Southeast Asia, which is my least traveled part of the world, has also a huge street food culture. But a lot of my favorite countries just were poorer countries, honestly. So it tends to be people making a living by selling what they can do, which is make a simple dish or two on the streets, uh, but typically very, very well. And a lot of people that don't have money to go to a restaurant, if there is, if there are any good ones, so they just eat on the streets or they eat at home. And um, what we found traveling 
and I think my favorite part of it, because like, you know, like I said, I'm not a chef. I do this because I love people. Like I love bringing people together into a space. And so to me, food is the best way to get people into a space and to come together. So what I saw on the streets while we were traveling was just that rich or poor, regardless of the country we were in, there was always a place, typically a town square where you could see business people in suits who clearly had jobs and money and super poor people eating at the same place, almost with like a national pride of like, this is something that represents our town or a city or our country. And that was so moving to me. I'm like, that's what I want. Like, that's what I want to pay for. That's what I want to revolve my restaurant around. And then memory, you know, looking back on our travels, David and I just kept realizing like our favorite memories were around some crazy thing that happened, you know, where we found food in an out of the way, unexpected location. And so... I think that the fantasy of, of opening a restaurant, especially while you're traveling and encountering foods that you've never tasted before, you have this idea that you're going to open a restaurant and share it with the world. And, and that's wonderful and romantic <laughs> yeah, and right. it sounds like it's going to be so easy and fun. And, and then what's, what's the reality of that? Like, I think a lot of people have gotten to that point where they're like, this would be a good idea, but not that many people have done what you've done, which is to say, yeah. all right, let me, let me actually make it happen. So what what is that what does that feel like what does it look like what are the details what are the first steps i'm sure there are a thousand first steps but <laughs> but how did you start oh it's hard right you got anyone that people ask me this a lot and i i, I want to encourage people always to just to do what they are passionate about and even if it's scary but yeah i will also give you the reality because i think some people didn't give it to me and I wish they would have because I had a lot of surprises about how hard it was. So if you ask me offline, feel free to email me. I will tell you the truth. Um, it, it is a little like that, that paper that you're writing and you can't just write the first sentence. So, right. Like you're just like, I got to skip it and then go back. And I think I finally did that. I got back to the States. I pulled the bandaid off. I just made a phone call. Um, an old boss of mine at a bar I worked at in Washington, um, was still a friend. Uh, when I got back from Russia, I just called him up and I was like, look, you've got a couple of businesses since I left. Can you tell me how to do this? And I took him a six pack of beer and went over to, and in his living room, just started taking notes. And he just started telling me how to do it. Like, this is basically how you start. And when you get, when you get this, then you can do this. And that's, something that's hard to find actually, unless you have a mentor or someone who is willing to tell you. So I think asking people and not being afraid to just like sit down and be like, Hey, I will buy you dinner. I will buy you a drink. Can you please just tell me what you did to get here? And that's where you get your clues that no book can tell you, no class can tell you. Um, and that's kind of, that's, that's how I started. But look, after that, it's like money all the time, right? Asking people for money, worrying about running out of money, then worrying about paying people back. So like money, we already knew that. But don't let that stop you. I think a lot of people get stuck on that. Oftentimes the money will come. Be scrappy. That is what I would say. I am a scrappy I was going to swear, but I'm going to stop. You can swear. I'm a scrappy motherfucker. Like I will get, I will make it work. And so I think if you can go in with that mentality, you'll be okay. Cause that's how I've gotten here. Um, but, but money's hard and finding the right people is hard. Just don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to look foolish. Just say, this is what I want. How do you do it? Um, and then you're going to get obstacles. Like I had people in the neighborhood try to stop me from getting a liquor license. Cause like I told you, Compass Rose is in a house. It's attached to a residential property. 
it's a thousand percent zoned for a restaurant, but the neighborhood was up in arms that we were going to disrupt the peace. And I spent thousands of unexpected dollars and hours of my life fighting neighbors who were going to be my neighbors, by the way, when I got the business and I have to look at them every day and be like, wow, you were really mad at me <laughs> before I ever did anything wrong. Um, those type of things, no one can really tell you. Some of it, you just have to be like, I'm going to take what comes. And how do you deal with that mentally? I think a lot of times people feel just exhausted from starting a business, yes, but also kind of it feels because it's your baby and you want it so badly, whenever there are obstacles, it feels really personal and it feels like those neighbors are attacking you. And, you know, everybody has their own, everybody's looking out for their own interests. So how are you able to kind of like keep that mental fortitude and also not kind of start feeling resentful or frustrated and angry at these people? Jenny, that's so good. You know, you're so right. Like that was a huge struggle because when it is a passion project and Compass Rose was 1000% my passion project, it is personal. And I, it's so funny because I was talking to Gerald and Chris, who are my partners, um, and the chefs at both restaurants on the way up about this very thing. So it's funny. It's like, you heard us. Um, but I was saying one of the <laughs> biggest business lessons I had was during that liquor license fight that I'm telling you about, I had to go to neighborhood meetings and there were these old men, I'm just going to tell you, that's who it was, um, who I think saw a younger woman as easy, an easy target. Like they could, they could win this fight. And oh, I, yeah. I would be mm -hmm. in these meetings with them and they would say ridiculous things. Like, I mean, so far as to say that I was going to open a brothel, I kid you not. Like, like my intention of like, what? Oh, I want to, yeah. Cause it was a house and I lived upstairs for three years. That was part of the thing. My grandfather had lived about a store. I wanted to do it. I wanted to be in my business. When they heard that, they're like, well, obviously it's going to be a brothel. Oh yeah. Cause I'm a woman. It's going to be a brothel. What is wrong with you? So right. That's what you want to say. What? You want to just shut them down because you're like, this is so irrational. But right. again, between my husband and, and my mentor, they sat there, they're like, don't do it. Just don't give in to like sparring over every little point. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, they're wrong, but they're irrational. Just focus on what you want. And it, I had to put the personal away. I had to put my self-righteousness and all my, fem like some of my feminist belief a little, just a little bit back um, to get what I wanted. And in the end, had it, it wouldn't have been worth it. And they were right. And I think stuff like that, I can't tell you other than having really positive people around you, like really good advisors and really good mentors to like check you a little bit. Um, I was really fortunate to have those. So really, really search them out and try to find them. And I think that's what made the difference for me. And so I look back now and say, I'm glad I didn't go down to the level and say the things that would have made me feel better in that moment. And I kept my eye on the prize and I, I did get it. And a few of them, by the way, have apologized, and a few of them have not. I would just like some to say. of them are now regulars at the restaurant. I'm Actually, sure. they are. They can never, <laughs> they can never spend enough money <laughs> to make up for what happened. But I have, I have, I have peace with them. A couple of them just don't talk to me, but that's fine. And then, so after having been through that fairly painful, definitely challenging yes. experience, you decided to do it again. Yeah, right. Because we're masochists, right. Western people. That's what we are. We're masochists. And where it's like childbirth where they say like you forget the pain because you love your kids so much or something like maybe that's it. Um, but you also learn a lot. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have kids. I don't even want to try it. <laughs> I don't know I, I'm yeah, actually I petrified. Um, but with restaurants, apparently I'm going to forget the pain and do it again. And um, a little bit is challenging yourself because you're like, look, I learned so much. I'm going to do it perfect this time. <laughs> nothing in this business is perfect. And you just, if you're a perfectionist, like watch out because you can strive for excellence or like what your, your standard is. But you know, um, a friend of mine, Aaron Silverman, who owns Rose's Luxury in DC, his like mantra, it's in literally neon lights in the restaurants is like, fuck perfect. And he, he sent us when we were listed in Bon Appetit, um, earlier, like later last year, he sent over 
a, a picture of his mantra, fuck perfect. And I think we should all remember that every day because if you're opening a restaurant, it's not going to be perfect. But um, it's hard. It's exhausting. You got to really love it. I don't understand how people do it if they don't. Um, I get all my energy from people. So I'm really lucky. I'm an extreme extrovert. And so when I have like good energy around me, but then you have to fight the bad energy because that comes those days too and it tries to pull you down. So it is an emotional, mental, physical, and it's very physical, right? Chefs and front of house, we are physically drained as well as mentally and emotionally. So it's hard. <laughs> I'm not really inspired in this right now, but I promise you, like I still end most days like, I'm really glad I'm doing this and I'm really happy that it happened. What did you learn from the first experience of opening Compass Rose that you were then able to apply to uh, my Don? I was a little more pragmatic. Like not every little thing was a personal quest. Like, you know, like if that contractor didn't show up, it didn't destroy my day. Cause I think there were days that things went wrong and I'm like, Oh, this is it. It's never going to happen. I'm going to lose all the money. And you just get like so dark so fast. And I did that. I went dark slower <laughs> for my Don. I still went dark. Don't think I did it of a little bit slower. Cause you're like, you know what? This isn't, this is actually okay. I can do this. You just have so much more confidence. I didn't have as much confidence going into compass rose cause I had never done it before. So your second one, you're just a little tougher. Are you uh, is there a third one in the works? Are you <laughs> thinking about ideas? Are you uh... What's there next? is not a third one in the works. I have some stuff in, you know, a few more concepts in my brain I would like to to do, um, but I'm trying to take it a little slow. Compass, you know, it was three years before we opened a new place, and I prefer that to the, like, rapid fire. Um, so, yeah, so you never know, but nothing nothing to speak of right now. Uh, in the last few minutes of the podcast, we transition into a, a more scared. personal, it's terrifying. It's I know, really I'm scared. Very high pressure, um, you know, personal rapid fire segment. So we're gonna throw some, yeah, right. <laughs> we're gonna throw some fun questions at you. Um, if you could master a skill overnight, what would it be? I would really love to sing, and I would be a jazz singer in a smoky bar. There's not really many smoky bars left, mm. but I, oh. yeah, I would be a jazz singer. Why a jazz singer? It, just because, like, when I first moved to New York when I was 20, um, my first experience with like, like jazz clubs, like in really kind of Harlem-ish, but just like, just the beginnings. I lived on the Upper West Side. Um, I thought it was the sexiest thing in the world. I would go in to smoke this little nightclub, yeah. sit at this table. Broadway and 106th Street. That's where it was. I and it I well. would go in there and there was this beautiful woman in a sparkly dress with this deep raspy. You can already hear my voice is already raspy. I just can't sing, unfortunately. So make this lyrical and I would do that in a heartbeat. What I would, would be you, that What lady. would you sing? Oh, God. Oh exact song I don't titles. Know, like, like a genre oh no jazz okay. I mean I'd be like yeah the sultry like the like the music that makes you want to fall in love stuff what uh, what music do you play at the restaurants so music is a huge part of both restaurants and it we play a lot of hip-hop in particular both old school hip-hop and new stuff I have an amazing music director named Mo who has worked with me at Compass since the first day and he designs the playlist so um, we do hip-hop there we do a little bit more uh, Middle Eastern music at uh, Maidan but we also do kind of like cool hip-hoppy stuff there too um, Egyptian stuff um, Lebanese stuff there's some really cool things awesome um, if you could be any animal I haven't done this one in a while if you could be any animal what kind of animal would you be and why um, so my staff tells me that I'm a meerkat. A meerkat. That's a very specific. No, no, this is a common conversation. I was ready for this one. I didn't know you were going to ask, but I was ready. Um, yes. You know how they like 
if you look at a picture, if you Google it right now, you'll see this like long neck, like this little creature with a long neck that puts their head up and sees everything. And this like rapid fire, like turns their head. They say, that's what I do. And then like, I constantly like see the thing that's wrong or like see something about to happen because I meerkat. They actually use it as a verb. (laughs) So I would probably be a meerkat, but recently this is really going to be weird. But I kind of started to think that cockroaches are my spirit, one of my spirit animals. What? I know, gross, right? I hate them. But they've constantly turned up <laughs> at really important points in my life. On another conversation, I'll tell you why I moved in with my husband, but it had to do with roaches. So something is there. I don't say I really want to be one, but I have a feeling I'm connected to them. But that's for another podcast. <laughs> um, what's the, I bet you're going to have a good answer to this one. What's mm. the best meal you've ever had that cost less than $5? Oh, no, there's so many options. A, a, a great meal that you had. Maybe not the best. Um, one uh, under $5. Yeah, under 5 under 10 You know, no, like a... Okay. I can do this. Um, in Lebanon, when... So, of course, I'm going to go to Lebanon. I'm a little biased. But um, when Gerald and Chris and I, and the, our little group from Compass and Maidan, um, landed in Beirut all together for the first time, there, is, there are these street stands that are... Um, it's like one business that takes up like two city blocks and the name is going to come to me before the show is over. Um, it just went out of my head cause you just asked me too fast, but they have like a falafel station and a shawarma station. You literally just walk around and you collect this amazing amount of food and then you feast and all of us just getting there. You get there at like the way the flights work. You get there at like one o'clock in the morning. It's open 24 hours. So we went, got a ton of food it was a hot summer night in Beirut and we just had the most beautiful night of like feasting and planning our trip and reminiscing on the part of our, our trip that was already over and everything was delicious. Barber. That's it. I told you. Barber. My Arabic is terrible. Please don't judge me. Um, but anyone that's been to Beirut will know it because it's pretty famous, but a very special place. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, I get to choose. I've always wanted to fly. Doesn't everybody? But I really oh, do. Oh, yeah. We get that a lot, yeah. Where, where would you fly to? What would you use your power for? Um, well, I would travel. It'd be a faster, cheaper way of traveling because I spend a lot of money traveling. <laughs> um, but I think the first place I would go would be Brazil because Brazil is the next country on my list that I haven't been to that I'm dying to go to. So I would fly to Brazil. Hmm. That sounds like fun. Yes. Um, what what did would you, you want to bring back from Brazil? Well, ideally... Food. It always comes back to food, guys. Um, so that is a cuisine that I don't know enough about. There's actually a large Lebanese population also. Um, my grandfather was sort oh, of obsessed with it. Yeah, so they have a lot of like Japanese and Lebanese food in Brazil. So, But I know it's a huge country and it changes. So I would want to explore all of Brazil and bring back my favorites. There's Lebanese food everywhere. There's, I know because I've... we left. Everyone <laughs> left for a very long civil war, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, some people are coming back and, again, a lot of there's a lot of migration now due to the Syrian crisis, so it is repopulating. Yeah. I had Lebanese food in the Dominican Republic. I had Lebanese yeah, food in Sierra it? Leone and West Africa. Yes, a friends of mine have been in Africa and said we're at this Lebanese restaurant. Yeah, You're not going to believe yeah, it. Yeah, amazing. All right, last question. Yes. Uh, what did you eat for lunch as a kid? Oh, typically leftovers from the night before, mm-hmm. which often were like. A breaded chicken cutlet with like tons of garlic that would smell my locker and be really embarrassing. Sounds but that delicious. is what my mom would send with me or something in pita bread. Mm. Nice. Uh, Rose, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Tell you. our listeners where they can find you, find your restaurants, learn more about what you're up to. Yes, I have like we're, we're more Instagram focused at both places. I have my own. It's just Rose Previtt. You can find me on Instagram or um, Compass Rose DC or Meet at Maidan DC. Either one of those will bring you to either of the restaurants or me. 
Great. And um, thanks to Amanda, our awesome engineer, and our uh, theme song, which is Blind by the Red Crickets. Nice. Uh, you can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And I'm going to Vietnam tonight, so uh, follow along oh, on the trip. I'll be posting yeah. a ton of pictures. And Jenny? Am I allowed to tell you how much and we you love your spices, by the way? Oh, Am uh, I allowed to say you. that on here? Sure. Oh, yeah. We use them at the restaurants, and we're huge That's groupies, awesome just so you know. Dinner. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Jenny. Um, you can, oh, yeah. You can always find me at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and you, oh, there's my dog in the you background. You can also find Jenny's dog. You can always find my dog there as well. Um, and you can always reach us at yfood at heritageradionetwork.org. Please send us your comments, questions, nominations for future guests. We'd love to hear them. We have some awesome guests lined up for the next few weeks. So, uh, Stay tuned, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.